Hi, everyone. It's great seeing all of you. I have to admit, because of the lighting, it's hard to see you. But I know someone's there. <laughs> I know you're there, like shadows. So, but maybe along the way, I'll, my eyes will get used to the lighting so I can see you more, see you better. But really good seeing all of you. Um, if you're new here, uh, we give you a warm welcome. My name's Aiden. Uh, I'm the pastor of uh, Covenant Life Church. I hope you are enjoying your time here so far, and I uh, hope you get to know us as a community uh, that, you can, that you're welcome to join and belong to. But again, I'm, I'm glad that we all can gather here together to uh, worship uh, and spend time, t- spend time together. Uh, we will continue on in our series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, where our goal is to go deeper uh, in our knowledge and relationship with Jesus uh, this semester. Um, so we'll continue on. Today's passage is found in Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. You can turn there uh, or turn to the screen. Uh, we have the, the passage for you. I'll read it for us, um, and we'll jump right into our time together here. Mark six forty-five through 56. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized them and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid their sick in their marketplaces and implored him, implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. That is God's word. Let's jump right into our time of the message together. Uh, let me give you the three points for today. Uh, Those are Jesus, the God of our trials. 
Second, Jesus, the God of our salvation. And third, Jesus, the God of our faith. And the title for this message is The God Who Walks on the Water. First point, Jesus, the God of our trials. Verse 45, Mark says, Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. There's a key word in this verse to help you understand what's going on here. The key word is the word made. That Jesus made his disciples to take a voyage across this big lake called the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And as we'll see in a moment, you know, Jesus is God incarnate. And that means that he is omniscient and certainly knew that this voyage would be a hard one for the disciples, if not dangerous. He knew it. So he couldn't easily spare the disciples of their mental and physical troubles that are about to happen. But instead, he made them go on this journey, go on this voyage. The question is, why in the world did he do that to his beloved disciples? Well, we find some clues of why he did that in the surrounding context. Let me list some for you. First of all, in the beginning of chapter 6, you know, we see Jesus uh, giving the disciples his authority to preach the gospel, miraculously heal people, and even cast out demons. Enormous power, right? And authority. And then, in last week's passage, where you know, Jesus fed uh, more than perhaps 15,000 people, by multiplying miraculously, you know, five loaves of bread and two fish. And there the disciples were serving the food to everyone as the representatives of Jesus. So by this time, you can imagine that the disciples were starting to feel haughty and entitled. You know, some people might have been praising them, saying, wow, you got all the power, even sicknesses and demons obey you. My goodness. And some others might have said, wow, you're serving all this food on behalf of this amazing Jesus. You must be part of his entourage. That's really cool. You must be someone great. The temptation, therefore, of pride and self-exaltation you know, must have been invading their hearts, the hearts of the disciples. And that is a dangerous thing. If you look with me in Proverbs 16.5, it says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Only God must be exalted, and those who are competing with God for glory are in danger of his righteous judgment. Besides, 
those who are prideful will hurt others also. There's also horizontal implication. You know, Uncle Ben tells Peter Parker that with great power comes great responsibility. But prideful, those who are prideful will use their power and their position of authority and their gifts and talents for their own fame and glamour. I mean, these things were meant to be used to serve others responsibly, but in the hands of the prideful, these are weapons. So therefore, Jesus makes his disciples sail on that dangerous lake at night by themselves. While they were wrestling with the wind and waves and really fighting for their lives, you know, they would have learned that they are utterly helpless and they're really nobodies apart from Jesus, no matter what they did on behalf of Jesus. They would have learned humility and dependence on Jesus on that night. Although we'll see in a moment that they still have a long way to go in that journey. You see, the point is, Jesus, the sovereign and good Lord, will make his people go through hard times so that they will grow mature in their character, particularly humility, to know how to use power and gifts from God well for the sake of God and others. And of course, to clarify, God is not the author of the evils that can give people a hard time. Rather, he sovereignly uses the evils caused by sin for his good purposes, such as his people growing in holiness. We see that in these two passages. One, Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph is talking to his brothers who uh, abused them, basically, and, and sold them to be slaves. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And Hebrews 12.10, For earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Uh, my wife, uh, Deb, and I have two young children. Uh, one of them is almost four, the other is almost one. And for both of our kids, when they're you know, only a few weeks old, uh, we you know, started giving them this thing called a tummy time. Uh, it was because of our pediatrician's recommendation, of course. Tummy time, there you go, that's probably a picture of my daughter, I think. Uh, I mean, they, all, <laughs> they look pretty similar when they're babies. <laughs> tummy time, for those of you who may not be familiar, uh, is to have newborn babies be on their tummies and make them suffer for a few minutes. 
You know, I mean, normally babies must not be on their tummies, right? Because then they will have a hard time breathing, and that's dangerous. So it's imperative that the babies are on their back, especially when they're sleeping, to ensure their safety. But doctors encourage parents to do tummy time with their babies regularly because it helps uh, develop muscles for the babies and enables them to eventually crawl and walk. These are very essential exercises for growing babies. Uh, so we gave uh, both of our kids uh, tummy times, and it was indeed suffering for them at that time, as you can see in Natalie's face. It was hard. You know, they, they would cry and not like it. You know, they couldn't even lift their chest, let alone their head. So most of the time, you know, they're crying and, you know, wobbling for their lives, you know? And if you just see that glimpse of our parenting, you might accuse me and my wife of being inhumane and cruel parents. I mean, we intentionally made our children enter a time of discomfort, fear, and pain. But experts will say that we're doing good to them because you know, we're in control of you know, their situation for safety, and we had a good purpose for doing this. The purpose was for them to grow and flourish as human beings as a result of this momentary suffering. It is really like that um, when it comes to God and us. If you are a believer in Christ, every hardship you go through in life has a good redemptive purpose under the sovereign guidance and protection from the Heavenly Father. Every single hardship. I mean, think right now with me of any hardship in your life, any trial right now. I mean, going from something small, such as frustration caused by the internet not working in your room or in your house, to something perhaps bigger, such as you know, academic and career struggles and some painful relational struggles in your lives. These are not random hiccups or inconveniences in your life, but they're intentional situations from God for you to examine your heart before him and grow in holiness, especially humility. So the question we should be asking during these times in these situations is, are there any areas in my life where I have grown prideful and sinful and selfish, that I'm actually hurting other people, and, and God, of course? And how can I grow then in my character through these situations to serve God and others better? That's the question we should be asking. And when we do that, we can find hope and joy because we realize that every single hardship we go through has a purpose behind it. None of them is random. Now, having said that, would you allow me to make a pastoral comment? You know, there are certain trials in our lives that are beyond painful so that this truth of God 
having a good purpose for them does not comfort us, but rather hurt us. I'm talking about the examples of such as you know, when you experience illness or even uh, death of somebody you care for. In those situations, it's not immediately comforting to hear that God has a purpose for this. If you're in there right now, I'm so sorry. I hope you know that. But I also want to tell you that God is not a God who expects you to endure those hardships with his arms crossed distantly. But God we see in the Bible is a shepherd that walks with you and even cries with you in those situations, just as he did at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11. And if you know that, the people of God in the church would also do well to know this and walk and cry also with those who suffer in our midst as opposed to throwing platitude and the, the truth at people, which is what Job's friends did in the book of Job. I hope you get that. Jesus, the God of our trials. Second, Jesus, the God of our salvation. Verse 48, it says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. The fourth watch of the night refers to the period from uh, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And since Jesus and the disciples are able to see each other in the story, it's likely that uh, it was closer to 6 a.m. You know, when there would have been the, the pre-sunrise lights for some visibility. And now, Jesus, in this scene, begins his miracle out of compassion for his people. He saw his disciples struggling, meaning our struggles and trials are never going unnoticed by our God. So from that heart, Jesus moves towards his disciples walking on the water. I mean, this is probably one of the most well-known miracles of Jesus, right? I mean, this miracle is unparalleled. There's no other human being that has ever recorded to have walked on water, except, of course, Peter in Matthew 14, who walked on water, but by the power of Jesus. So here we see, you know, everyone, every reader of this book should be alarmed when we see this, because Jesus is no ordinary being. Nobody else can walk like that on the water. But as if this phenomenon that we read about and see is not clear enough, Mark, the author, seems to want to make his point even clearer by 
you know, bringing in some Old Testament images. You know, Mark says something very interesting here, right? I mean, at first, it may sound very weird. He says that Jesus meant to pass by the disciples. I mean, he was going to them. Why would he pass by them? You know, those who are well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures would right away recall, you know, those instances where God revealed himself to certain individuals when they hear this, this phrase. For example, in Exodus 33 and 34, you know, God was revealing his glory to Moses, but he passed by Moses because no one can see God's face and live. And also in Kings, 1 Kings 19, God also passed by Elijah. But I think Mark may have specifically had Job 9 in mind. And it says this in Job 9. Um, from the next slide, it says, God, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word trample there is the same word as walk. And the phrase passes by is the same word that Mark uses. So Mark is basically portraying Jesus as God, who has absolute power over the nature and whose glory is so astounding that it can kill the beholders. He is God. Now, that truth needs more understanding on our part. What I mean by that is, even in our passage, it begs for deeper understanding of what it means that Jesus is God. Because in verse 46, Jesus is praying to God, God the Father, which shows that Jesus is fully human, who needs to commune with God the Father in order to do his will. And yet, at the same time, we just saw that Jesus is fully God, doing what only God can do over the laws of nature. So the truth here, right away, that we see is God is the triune God, who is one, and yet exists uh, in three distinct persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is uniquely both fully God and fully man. It's hard for sure to understand, but that's who he is. And now knowing that has a significant implication for our lives. And that is, if you know that he's fully God and fully man, and that's who he is, that assures us that Jesus is the perfect Savior and our salvation in him is complete and secure. What do I mean? Please follow with me here. What that means is that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, you know, he could perfectly satisfy God's righteous wrath on our behalf. It's because he was fully man without any sin or blemish, so he could die for another human being. Qualified sacrifice. 
And yet he was fully God, a being of infinite value, so he could die and cover for not just one person's sins, but over multitudes of people, including you and I. Meaning Jesus, in his identity as fully God and fully human, he's the only perfect Savior in the whole universe who is qualified to die for our sins and save us completely. And that's why if you read through the the book of Mark and other books in the Bible where we see Jesus healing people physically, they're all pointers to the ultimate healing that we have in Jesus, the healing from sin and death. He is the perfect Savior in whom our salvation is complete and secure. He's our rock of our salvation. So what that means is that in order to live in confidence and joy in our lives, we must constantly behold who Jesus is and trust him and know and commune with who he is and know who we are in him. Your next slide has a picture of me and my son. Uh, last year, my family and I traveled to the East Coast um, to visit my wife's families there. My wife's originally from Maryland. And on one of the days uh, during the trip, you know, we went to a beach in the area. And we were determined to have Seth, our firstborn, you know, who was uh, two years old at the time, um, to go into the water and, and overcome any fear that he you know, may have towards water. And naturally, he was resist- resistant at first, um, naturally, but you know, we assured him uh, that, that I would hold him, uh, hold on to him all throughout in the water. Uh, so we went in together, and uh, you know, I held him in my arms, and you know, we went, you know, we, we step by step uh, went deeper and deeper into the water. And we finally got to the point where the water was up to my chest, pretty deep. And Seth started you know, feeling the water on his feet and legs. So he was a little shaking, a little bit. So I kept telling him, it's okay, it's okay. I'm with you. I'm holding on to you like this. I'm holding on to you really tight right now. You feel that. And in turn, he held on to me really tight too. And we stayed there for you know, good, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And Seth got used to the water and started having fun with it. And at some point, I suggested to him, like, hey, what if we done something more fun? You know, I would kind of uh, bring you a little out further away from me, and we'll just do this, you know, I'll just wave you like this over and over. It's going to be fun. Why don't we try it? And to my surprise, he agreed, and, and we did it. And man, he loved it. He really got over the fear of water. You know, Seth was able to have fun uh, that day because he knew who I was, that I was his father who loves him and would always do what is good to him, and that I would ensure his safety. 
Likewise, we can have joy and peace in our lives and overcome our fears when we know who our Savior Jesus is. That we know that He is good and that we know that He is the God-man who ensured our eternal safety, so to speak, by perfectly atoning for our sins. If you know him, you can be secure in your life and go through those trials trusting in his goodness. Third and last, Jesus, the God of our faith. Verses 51 and 52 says this. Conclusion of uh, this episode. Mark says, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Hmm. The idea of the heart being hardened was used, of course, for you know Pharaoh, if you know the story in Exodus, but most recently in the book of Mark, in Mark 3, 5, it was used for Pharisees who were conspiring to kill Jesus. So basically, Mark is depicting that the disciples are displaying such level of unbelief as that of the enemies of Jesus. They went pretty low in their state. But how can this be? How, how is this possible? I mean, the disciples had the authority of Jesus to preach and heal and cast out demons. And, and they witnessed Jesus multiplying five loaves of bread and two fish to feed 15,000 people in front of their eyes. And that now they just saw with their own eyes Jesus walking on the water. I mean, shouldn't they be having 100% faith at this point? without any doubts, because who else in history had this much exposure to historical Jesus and his power? It's unthinkable, but it is true, because this shows that the, the genuineness and strength of our faith does not necessarily depend on the extraordinary experiences. You know, experiences and our feelings come and go. But faith is what's left in our hearts after those external factors are gone. You know, am I still longing for Jesus? And am I still loving him with a tender heart, even when his benefits are gone? But unfortunately, we see in the story that the faith of the disciples turned out to be rather shallow and fickle. They were loving Jesus only when they got what they wanted from him, such as you know, power and fame. But definitely they did not want storm in their lives. So they are doubting and they are antagonistic towards Jesus at this point. But as we assess their faith and their failures, I think it should also give us hope as well because I think Mark is trying to tell us to empathize 
with his disciples. And it's, what's interesting is that Mark, John Mark, the author of this gospel, lists a lot of failures of the disciples. It's probably because he himself failed. If you read through the book of Acts, there's a point where John Mark abandoned Apostle Paul for his own gain. He failed. But later on, Paul restores him. So he knows what it means to be failing in their faith. So what this means is, when we look at the disciples, is that Jesus never gives up on his people. He never gives up on you, regardless of the level of faith that you display at any moment. That's why Tim Keller says, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. If it is up to me and your faith, we're all doomed. We got to know that and be honest with that. So you see, Jesus still rescued the disciples from the storm, and he will still love them and use them for the kingdom, even after, later on, after they you know, betray him to death. That's the storyline, right? But he still used them afterwards. He will never give up on us, no matter how fluctuating you and my faith gets throughout our lives. Now, this one time, uh, I attended a wedding with my wife, uh, or, or then girlfriend, and I felt really awkward, to be honest with you. Really awkward. Here, here's the reason why. It's because I didn't really know the, the couple that was, that was getting married in front of me. I tagged along with my wife. You know, she knew them well, and I went there because I was her boyfriend. <laughs> that was all. And uh, and the ceremony ended, and here came that dreadful time, which was, it was a time when the guests had to exit the sanctuary, had to greet the bride and groom on the way out. And as my turn was approaching, you know, I was debating what to do to greet them. You know, I mean, should I still give them a hug when I don't know them? But it would be really awkward if I just, you know, just did this on the way out or just like smile at them and say congrats. That would be awkward too. So I was like, man, what do I do? So I was like getting all stressed out while I was like approaching, you know, my turn. But then uh, the, uh, the groom, so it was my turn. So Deb had already, you know, gave them warm hugs and, and moved on. Then it was my turn and the groom who was even less familiar uh, to me than the bride, he locked eyes with me. And like for a few seconds, I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Hug or no? Hug or no? But then he said right away, hey, what's up, man? Thanks for coming. And he just like rushed towards me and gave me a, you know, a cool hug, right? I was touched. <laughs> I was really, 
uh, thankful that he did that because I really didn't know what to do um, to make that situation any, any better. And I think because of that proactive hug, I was able to give the bride hug too because I was warmed up. I was like, oh, okay. I guess I can do this for this too. It's all out here. So I congratulated them and you know, we moved on. And I think that really, I guess, touched me in certain ways so that I feel really accepted in that you know, uh, reception and all the ensuing program. So I was able to enjoy uh, from there on, just you know, the, the food and the company, and even get to know the couple um, little by little as the, the program went on. And I share this because maybe uh, some of us uh, are to Jesus like my wife was to the couple. Maybe you, know, you personally know Jesus really well and your faith in him is you know, strong and alive right now, uh, at, at least at this moment. So when you meet him, or when you meet with him and, and commune with him, in whichever setting, you don't feel awkward at all, uh, but you're able to pray to him and show your affection. Uh, and you're in a good state in your faith. But maybe others of us are to Jesus like I was to the couple. Uh, at least at this moment, you may feel distant and awkward towards Jesus. You may have had lots of doubts about him, and even bitterness towards him, and your emotion for him is barely there. You don't know what to say or, or do with him. You may even feel like you shouldn't be in his presence, in our shame. But just like how the couple was to me, to me, that's a good picture of what Jesus is like throughout the Bible and especially in this passage and throughout the book of Mark. That he welcomes both kinds of guests. It does not matter how much faith you have or you think you have. What matters is the object of your faith. Who he is, what he has done to accomplish salvation for you, and how he is inviting you, welcoming you to join his party, his gathering, his communion. And as you, you know, persistently come to him and, and say yes to the invitation and accept hugs, so to speak, from him, your hearts will change. That's a promise. His word will warm your heart. That's why in Romans 10, 17, it says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's why I've been saying past few weeks that whenever we get together like this, it is God's invitation towards you. He's saying, I love you. Come join me. Let me give you a hug. You're welcome, dear, no matter how you feel. No matter where you are in your faith, take heart, therefore, and do not be afraid. And as we see in this story, hold on to even the fringe of his garment, so 
so to speak. Touch him. Meet with him. And as you behold who he is, how he secure our salvation, now humbly trust him in every trial that he made you go through in his goodness. Let's pray together.